Luke 22, verses 20 through 22. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. But behold, the hand of my betrayer is with me on the table. And truly, the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Father, we thank you for your word. And as we study it and uh, look at the events of the Passion Week, I pray that each one of us here would be encouraged. Uh, Bless us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week we looked at the barley harvest and how it marvelously foreshadowed the first resurrection at the beginning of Christ's kingdom. And then we looked at the wheat harvest and how it foreshadowed the second resurrection at the end of Christ's kingdom. And uh, those two are very, very important points in the Christian faith. So both sides of the kingdom are wrapped, as it were, or bookended, is the way some people word it, in displays of Christ's power over uh, life and over death. Now, a couple of people asked me after the last uh, sermon concerning the barley harvest events that were leading up to it, some of the other things that were in there, I'd only briefly reference those. And since this is Palm Sunday, and since the chronology of the Palm Sunday uh, events tie in so well with what we were talking about last week, but especially since I just didn't have time this week, our office is not put together, I am pulling out an old sermon that uh, most of you here have probably uh, heard. It's going to be a topical sermon. And... um, I want to jump off of that first phrase in verse 22. It says, And truly the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. Now he said truly because it's going to take some faith to believe this. He wants us to believe all of these events uh, that he's going to be talking about. And he said that everything he had been doing and what was going to be happening to him had been already predetermined in God's plan, including when he would be betrayed. And this concept of every hour of Christ's ministry being predetermined by God, it can be seen all through the Gospels. There's a technical uh, phrase uh, for that, uh, especially in the Greek. But I'll just give you a few examples. In John 4, verse 4, it says that Jesus needed to go through Samaria. And any first century Jews who knew the geography and were reading that thinking, he needed to go through Samaria? Why? Because that's a way roundabout detour. It'd be very inconvenient for his final destination. Why does it say he needed to go? Well, the story goes on to indicate God had providential uh, assignment and arrangement with the Samaritan woman. He needed to go there in order to meet uh, with her. Likewise, in Luke 13, verse 13, Jesus said, nevertheless, I must, same Greek word, I must journey today, tomorrow, and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. Now, people had tried to kill Christ earlier, and they had been utterly unsuccessful, and the Gospels give us the reason why they were unsuccessful. It says, because his hour had not yet come. It was absolutely impossible to kill Jesus prior to his hour arriving, but now that the time of the festival has come, he had to die. 
Now, the Pharisees didn't want him to die during the festival. They tried to stop that whole process, but they were unsuccessful. Mark 14, verse 2 says that the Pharisees tried to avoid any confrontation with Christ during the festival because of the crowds. They didn't want a riot on their hands. They wanted to quietly kill him afterwards. But he had to die during that festival because it had been prophesied 1,500 years earlier. He went as it had been determined, okay, determined in God's plan. Verse 27 of that same chapter spoke of the hour that he must be glorified. And Mark 13, 1 spoke of the hour that he must leave the world. Everything about that week was perfectly timed down to the hour, and there was at least three events that are timed down to the minute. And yet, surprisingly, it has been the timing of the Passion Week that has come under so much criticism by atheists. It has been the timing of the Passion Week that has puzzled so many evangelicals. It's been the timing of the Passion Week that has led even pastors like Dan Barker, you may have read about him, uh, leaving the faith. He was a pastor, and he became an atheist. Now, I don't for a moment believe that it was these supposed contradictions that made him leave the faith. There's a whole lot of other things going on, including a bad heart and the fact that he was not one of the elect. You can no more lose your salvation than one of these events in the Passion Week could be thwarted. That's absolutely impossible. But it still is shocking to me that Dan Barker could say that he talked to his fellow pastors on the pastor's council and say, how do you reconcile these things? These seems, see, seem like absolute contradictions, and they just said, well, you just got to trust. They didn't have any answers to those questions. And to me, that's, um, that's sad. He claims that's when his skepticism began to grow. And he, along with a number of other people, have realized the enormous problems that have arisen with a traditional understanding of the Passion Week. Now, to me, that's understandable. Anytime you allow the traditions of man to dictate your exegesis, you're going to get yourself into troubles. And this is a tradition of man. There's nowhere in the Scripture it says that Jesus had to be crucified on Friday. I'm going to be advocating a Thursday crucifixion, okay? But once tradition is locked into your brain, it's really hard. Those presuppositions keep you from interpreting things right. Anyway, let me, let me read to you uh, from a Friday advocate what uh, the problems are that they face, and some of them say that it's just unresolvable. John Wenham uh, says this, now it so happens that the story of Jesus' resurrection is told by five different writers whose accounts differ from each other to an astonishing degree. Now let me remind you, this is an evangelical speaking here. But he says they contradict each other. So much so, he says, that distinguished scholars, one after another, have said categorically that the five accounts, Paul's included, are irreconcilable. Going back to the last century, the great radical P.W. Schmiedel said, the Gospels exhibit contradictions of the most glaring kind. Remaris enumerated ten contradictions, but in reality, their number is much greater. Even the doughty conservative Henry Alfred wrote, of all harmonies, those of the incidents of these chapters are to me the most unsatisfactory. They seem to me to weaken instead of strengthening the evidence. I have abandoned all idea of harmonizing throughout. 
Uh, he said that in his commentaries. I'm not even bothered to try to harmonize. I think it's impossible to harmonize. Now, I know that's not a very cheerful way to begin a sermon uh, on uh, the Passion Week, but I'm very cheerful about the, uh, the, the Passion Week as a whole because I've read every one of the objections that are in my library, and there's a lot of them out there, and I can say with absolute confidence that they harmonize in the most glorious way, down to the most minute detail. And uh, I have been, once again, as I've reviewed this material, I've been once again blessed with Christ's words that we just read. He said, truly, truly, you can trust his chronology. You can trust his word. Truly, the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. Now, it doesn't mean there's not a lot of work to do. <laughs> I think there is uh, in, in trying to figure out those harmonizations. But part of it, deals with re-examining your assumptions. If you begin with the wrong presuppositions, there is no, uh, uh, there is no harmonization that will be possible. And um, uh, the harmonization all revolves around whether Jesus was crucified on Wednesday, Thursday, or Friday. The traditional view has been that Jesus was crucified on Friday, and again, the Bible doesn't say that. That was a Roman Catholic tradition and uh, many Protestants uh, bought into that, but it's an understandable assumption. If the only thing you have read is one of the uh, gospel accounts of the resurrection, it seems like, okay, that's a logical conclusion that you're going to come to because it says that he was taken down just before the Sabbath. Well, the Sabbath is what? It's Saturday. So he must have been crucified on Friday, laying in the tomb on Saturday, rose on Sunday. What's the contradiction? What's the controversy? But all down through history, theologians have wrestled deeply with the text because they have recognized there are issues. They've torn their hair out trying to reconcile a Friday crucifixion with dozens of other facts that are laid out in the Gospels. If you hold to a Friday crucifixion, it messes up the number of days that the Gospels count down from Nisan 10 to the resurrection. It messes up Palm Sunday, makes it a Palm Monday unless you insert a day into the record that the Gospels say nothing about and that atheists are quick to pounce on and say, that's a desperate measure. Where in the world do you get that exegetically? Uh, if you hold to the version of the Friday theory that has Jesus crucified on the day that the lambs are slain, and that's when I believe he was crucified, Nisan 14, then on the Friday theory, it messes up the year in which he was crucified, making it either impossibly early or impossibly late. If you believe that he was crucified in AD 30, where most scholars believe he had to have died, and I do too, then it completely messes up other parts of the week for those who say that he died on Friday. It messes up the prophetic significance of the time when the lambs were slain, the presentation before the temple, his anointing. He died on, if he died on Nisan 15, as most modern Friday theorists are forced to believe, then the specific Passover meal that he ate had lamb in it, something that the Gospels seem to deny, and something that messes up the institution of the Lord's Supper. It also keeps Christ from fulfilling the Passover calendar, where on their theory, he doesn't die when the temple lambs die. It just kind of messes up the prophetic significance of what that's pointing forward to. And by the way, you can't eat Passover lamb until Nisan 15 because only priests were authorized to slay those lambs 
uh, from the time of Moses and on. Uh, well, the first Passover was not, that was not true, but from that time on, uh, only the priests could do that. And uh, so that would be a day early for the slaying of those lambs. It also, um, uh, there's also timing issues that cannot be gotten uh, right. Back in 2011, I spent a great deal of time putting together this chart, basically, that you've got in your hands here, um, uh, on pages two and three, especially. And um, what I, what I tried to do is just inductively, looking at every hint that you can find in the text, try to see which of the three theories that have been held historically in the church meets all of those, uh, those tests. And uh, I came to once again appreciate the incredible beauty and symmetry that happens when you adopt a Thursday crucifixion in AD 30. Uh, the arguments in Time Life, uh, Time Magazine, that just shredded, uh, you know, the, the Passion Week account, showing all kinds of contradictions. Every one of those contradictions in that article completely evaporate on a Thursday theory. Uh, there are no contradictions whatsoever. So there's going to be two points to today's sermon. The first point answers the question of what day that Jesus died on. The second point then goes through and shows the beautiful symmetry that results if you understand that question correctly. Uh, many atheists have objected that Matthew 27, verse 63, Mark 8:31, and John 2, 9 all say that Jesus would be in the grave for three days. And yet on the Friday theory, Christ would have been in the grave a maximum of 39 hours. Maximum 39 hours. Probably be a lot less uh, than, than that because uh, it seems like he was put into the grave just shortly before the Sabbath began. So if you count, um, let's just give them the benefit of the doubt and count from the time he died at 3 p.m. You count from 3 p.m., on Friday to 3 p.m. on Saturday, that's 24 hours. 3 p.m. on Saturday to 6 a.m. on Sunday, that's the absolute latest he could have risen from the grave because John says he rose while it was still dark. Uh, that only comes, that adds another 15 hours, but that only comes to 39 hours, which atheists say is a tad bit short of the 72 hours. Now, just to be fair to the Friday theory advocates, this is actually pretty easy to answer because Jews counted inclusively, right? Uh, that was a convention that they had. They count the first day and the last day. So three days does not have to mean three 24-hour periods starting when he was buried. That's what Wednesday advocates say has to happen. Okay, it has to be three full uh, days. Um, I mean, that can mean a part of uh, uh, any period of, of those three days. So part of Friday, all of Saturday, all of Sunday, that's three days. And so if that was the only objection to this, I wouldn't even be preaching the sermon. Uh, but um, there's a whole lot more to it than that. If you look at Matthew 12, why don't you take a look at that? This is the one that gives them the headache. There, there's a few other passages that give them a headache as well. But Matthew 12... And verse 40, the Friday theory simply cannot answer this objection with regard to three days. Um, I've looked at every imaginable defense of the Friday theory, and it just doesn't work. It says, For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, 
So will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now that's different than just saying three days. Okay? There has to be at least three daylight periods and at least three nighttime periods to be able to fulfill uh, this verse. And since John 20 verse 1 says that Jesus rose while it was still dark on Sunday morning, that means on the Friday theory he would have been in the grave uh, a small portion of Friday's daylight, all of Saturday's daylight. He would have been in the grave uh, Friday night and Saturday night, that's two full nights, so even counting inclusively, the most you can get is two nights and two days. And let me just explain the difference between counting inclusively and counting exclusively. If fence posts are placed every 20 feet along a 1,000-foot uh, road, how many fence posts do you need? Well, you get your calculator out, you divide 1,000 by 20, and you come up with 50 fence posts. Well, actually, you'd be one short because you need to have a fence post at the beginning as well as at, at the end. Uh, and so that's counting inclusively, and we do that all of the time in construction and many other kinds of, uh, of projects. And uh, there's nothing strange about that. On calendars, though, you can do it either way. You can count the start date or you can count the next day after the start date. So the first would be inclusive, the second would be uh, exclusive, and people do that a lot. Almost all the so-called mistakes that people talk about are simply the difference of counting inclusively or counting exclusively. And one is not right or wrong. It just depends on who you're talking to because, like the Romans, they had the convention of counting exclusively, and the Jews had the convention of counting inclusively. So depending on which audience you're interacting with is going to make a difference on which counting you're going to look up. And if you want to study that out a little bit more detail, uh, even Wikipedia has got a great article on it, um, on inclusive versus exclusive counting. It, we use both uh, in, in modern times. So on the Wednesday theory, they try to answer the atheist by saying that Jesus was crucified in Wednesday was in the grave three full 24-hour periods, adding up to exactly 72 hours. That's counting exclusively. Now, that's legitimate if the text calls us to do that. But unfortunately, while it solves one problem, it introduces a plethora of other problems. And I'm not going to be focusing a huge amount on the Wednesday theory, though my chart here does. We're definitely not going to go through all of those points in there. You probably thought, this is going to take us till Resurrection Day to get through uh, this whole chart here. I just wanted you to have a little bit more information there. But uh, on those uh, pages, what I've done is I've given 20 biblical hints. These are anchors, and uh, I've judged the theories on these. The Wednesday theory uh, only scores nine points out of 20. It only gets nine of these right. But it's better than the Friday theory, which only gets six out of 20 right. And we're going for broke. We're going for all 20. Uh, and um, uh, let's take a look at the, the first point, and this is on page uh, two. How does the Thursday theory match up to scoreboard number one? three days and three nights. Well, if you look on page one 
And the left-hand side, the chart that says Christ's death at the Passover, you will see that it does match. Now, I, I've put this down visually here because Jewish days start at 6 p.m., not at midnight. And it just messes with the brain if you're trying to do it without a picture. And so the pictures help you to see how many daylight periods, how many nighttime periods are in any given uh, sequence of, uh, of days. And there were three daytime periods, three nighttime periods in A.D. 30 it, uh, on the Thursday crucifixion uh, theory. Unlike the Friday theory where Jesus was in the grave parts of two days and two nights, on the Thursday crucifixion theory he was in there counting exclusively. He was in there, uh, no, inclusively, excuse me, he was in there three days and three nights. Okay, back to point two of our scoreboard. Does it meet the criteria uh, of the sequence being three days and nights rather than three nights and days? And yes, it does. Jesus was clearly put into the grave before the Sabbath began, but this text actually is talking about uh, being in the heart of the earth, not just being in that tomb. It's talking about being in Sheol, and that started at 3 p.m. When he, when he died. And so very, very clearly, either way you interpret it, uh, the first period is a daylight period, and he's counting not nights and days, but days and nights. Now, the only reason I even bring that up is because uh, uh, the Wednesday theory advocates like to be really picky uni on, on hours uh, being accurate down to the hour, and I just use that to show that they're actually not accurate on quite a number of texts. Uh, I believe in being accurate down to the hour if the Scripture calls for that. Um, okay, third point on the scorecard is that Mark 8.31 says that Jesus would be killed and after three days rise again. Now that word after creates a huge problem for both the Wednesday theory and the Friday theory. The Wednesday theory bases its whole system on an exclusive counting method. In fact, there is absolutely no reason to even believe the Wednesday theory unless you believe you have to count exclusively. Uh, that, that, there's just no point to it. But it also rules out the Friday system, which clearly cannot account for the resurrection being after three days on any form of counting, inclusive or exclusive. They try to make the word after there just refer to after he was caught after he was, you know, captured and bound. But it's very clear. It's after he dies, he rises after three days. Uh, if Jesus was buried late on Friday afternoon, Sunday is not after three days, no matter how you slice it. But on a Thursday theory, it is. You've got Thursday, Friday, Saturday, counting inclusively. And after that comes Sunday. That's just a very natural method of counting. Now, atheists will immediately object, well, Phil Kaiser, you can't have it both ways. If it's after, it can't be on the third day. That would be within. And so we got a contradiction. One scripture says that he is, he is uh, raised within three days. Another one says he is raised after three days. Well, it may seem like a contradiction at first blush, but it really is not. Uh, what I would point out, first of all, is that it really does not seem credible to me that Mark is going to contradict himself within the space of 37 verses. Uh, but let's just leave that aside. Um, first of all, I would point out that two different people are speaking here. 
Jesus was speaking to Jews who counted inclusively, and Mark was speaking to Romans who tended to count exclusively. Okay, so he's explaining to the Romans what Jesus means. Uh, each had their own convention, but Mark does not explain the situation by changing Christ's words. That might have been tempting to him so that people would not misunderstand, but no, that would be dishonest historiography. So what he does is he very accurately quotes exactly what Jesus said, and then to be very accurate to his audience, he interprets what was meant by that by saying it was after counting exclusively. And so I say, yes, it's absolutely accurate, depending on which audience you're speaking to. Both the Wednesday and the Friday theories fail to account for these different ways of wording things. They insist that the Scripture can only count one way. It's either got to be all-inclusive or it's all got to be uh, exclusive, but they're failing to take into consideration that the various Gospels were written to different audiences. Uh, several Friday theory papers that I've read have insisted that inclusive counting is Hebrew, exclusive counting is Western. Now that's generally true, but as I showed on the fence post illustration, even the Westerners count inclusively sometimes. And um, uh, they, um, the um, Wednesday theory people, uh, they insist that there's not a single example in Scripture of inclusive counting. Well, that's patently ridiculous. I think almost nobody agrees with that. Every commentary that I've looked up says that Luke 13, verse 32 is an example of inclusive counting. Jesus said, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I shall be perfected. So his counting explicitly includes today. If it includes today, it's automatically inclusive counting. So you're beginning to understand the differences on those two approaches. Now, both systems of counting are actually used in the Old and New Testaments, just as both systems are routinely used today. Um, I, I dare say that probably, whether you realize it or not, every one of you has used inclusive and exclusive counting at some point or another. But uh, Hebrews tended to assume inclusive counting when you talk to them, and the Thursday and the Friday theories bank on that fact whereas the Romans tended to assume exclusive counting. Uh, so it makes sense that Mark would accurately record Christ's inclusive counting that had been spoken to the Jews and then explain himself to the Roman audience. But if you take an either-or approach, you just say it's got to be one or the other, it's absolutely impossible to reconcile all of the phrases that I've put into those charts. You cannot do it. Okay, fifth point is that the Friday theory messes up a big chunk of the prophetic calendar. Now, it didn't used to. Uh, Edersheim, uh, Alfred Edersheim's got a massive book on the life and times of Jesus the Messiah. It's well worth reading through that. He's an advocate of the Friday theory, and uh, he said that Christ was crucified on uh, AD 34. And given that he didn't have a computer to work back the lunar cycles, it's absolutely astounding that he was only off by one day. Um, he was really a brilliant man, and uh, I've got to hand it to him on that. But 
from 1973 on, when they began to use computers to look back on the lunar cycles, they, everybody realized Edersheim uh, had miscalculated, and 34 AD simply would not work for the date of Christ's death. And there's a lot of other problems with an AD 33 or 34 date as well. So that most scholars today opt for the same date I hold to, AD 30. It doesn't matter what kind of problems it makes for them. They say, we just can't get around it. He had to have been crucified AD 30. I think it's a pretty solid date. So what have they done? Well, this has absolutely forced the Friday theory people to say that Jesus was crucified not on Nisan 14 when the lambs are killed, but he was crucified on the next day on Nisan 15. And we'll look at the problems with that. Um, one of the problems is that that is making these legalistic Pharisees break their own Sabbath traditions on a Sabbath. Uh, why don't you take a look at John 19. John 19, verse 31, it says, Therefore, because it was the preparation day, that the bodies should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day. So he's explaining. This is not your usual weekly Sabbath. This was a festival Sabbath. Uh, that, that the bodies should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Now, the key thing to notice is that these legalistic Jews did not want these bodies hanging on the cross on a Sabbath, and yet the Friday theory advocates who have been forced by an 80-30 uh, crucifixion date um, to believe that he, he's crucified on Nisan 15, what it's forced them to do is to believe that these Jews would not want these bodies hanging on the tree on a regular weekly Sabbath, but they'd have no problem whatsoever on breaking a Passover Sabbath. That's just not credible. Uh, a Sabbath was a Sabbath, and you just didn't do those kinds of, uh, of things on the Sabbath. But even if it were okay for them to do all of this work on the Passover Sabbath, it does not meet what the text says. Take a look at verse 42. John 19, verse 42. So there they laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day, for the tomb was nearby. Okay, they're in a hurry. Uh, they don't have time to do more because the Sabbath was almost upon them. But the modern Friday theory people are trying to rescue the theory, still have it on, on, on uh, AD 30. They, what they say is this has to be the weekly Sabbath. This has to be the weekly Sabbath. But look at verse 14. Let's back up a little bit. John 19, 14. Now it was the preparation day of the Passover Preparation day of the Passover. This is not the preparation day for the weekly Sabbath. This was the preparation day for the Passover Sabbath, which was one of the seven high Sabbaths in the year. And of course, uh, verse 31 calls it a habit. So there's no way that this could be the regular uh, Sabbath in AD 30. Uh, when you look at the AD 30 calendar, it was Thursday that was before the Passover Sabbath. So the day after Christ was crucified was clearly Nisan 15. If you look at the Jewish calendar for 8030, you find that Nisan 14 was Thursday, Nisan 15 was Friday, Nisan 16 was a Saturday. And it's inconceivable to me that Jesus would send somebody out to buy things on the Sabbath uh, 
when all stores were closed. Nobody was allowed to buy and sell on the Sabbath. And it's inconceivable that Nicodemus could go out and actually buy linens and buy spices if that was the Sabbath day uh, that they were buying it on, whether it was a Passover or not non-Passover. So scoreboard numbers eight and nine are knocked off. When you get one part wrong, it's like dominoes. All of the rest, you know, get messed up. Now, one other interesting note is that both Matthew and Mark speak of more than one Sabbath prior to Sunday. Very interesting. But none of the Gospels speak of more than one day of preparation. I think that's significant. That means that the Sabbaths had to have been back-to-back, and there's only one year when that occurred, and that was in A.D. 30. In A.D. 30, Friday was the Passover, high day Sabbath, Saturday was the weekly Sabbath. So the day of preparation had to happen on Thursday. John makes clear Christ was crucified on the preparation day of the Passover. So point number seven argues against the Wednesday theory too, since there is no evidence that there were two days of preparation, one on Wednesday and another on Friday. If the Wednesday theory were correct, if he were crucified in a different year, that's what they say, both Wednesday and Friday should have been called days of preparation. And this strongly suggests two two Sabbaths not separated by a non-Sabbath Friday. They're back-to-back. Now, of course, in AD 30, the two Sabbaths were back-to-back. And let me just read you what James Montgomery Boyce, uh, he died a few years ago, but what he said on these two Sabbaths. He said, Matthew's account of the events of the resurrection morning begins in the end of the Sabbaths, plural, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, The plural Sabbaths has been a puzzle to many commentators and translators who usually change it to the singular Sabbath. But the plural is completely explained if there were actually two Sabbaths, the Friday Passover Sabbath and the Saturday Sabbath back to back. Now let me try to wind down this first uh, section. I know it's a little bit complex to, to follow, but if the Thursday crucifixion is correct, it makes a big difference. It means that Jesus partook of the first Passover meal on Nisan 14, not the lamb Passover meal of Nisan 15. And we're actually back on uh, scoreboard number five here. Um, If Jesus ate the Passover meal on Wednesday evening at the beginning of Nisan 14, as I believe, then he ate a meatless meal. The whole meal was a ceremony with bread and wine. So yes, it was a Passover meal, but it was not the lamb Passover meal. The lambs weren't even available to be slain yet. They they would have been slain eight hours later on the same day, Nisan 14. Then uh, that lamb would be eaten when uh, Nisan 15 began on Thursday evening. So the same bread and wine were eaten on both days, but on Nisan 15, the lamb was the focus, not the bread. On the night that Jesus ate the Passover, the bread was the focus. Okay, so as we'll see in a moment, uh, Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper with bread and wine alone because the next day he would be the final lamb. Okay, he did not want competition. He certainly did not want to permanently institute blood and meat for the Lord's table. From here on in, Bread was to only symbolize the flesh, and wine was to only symbolize the, the blood, just as water baptism replaced the bloody symbol of circumcision. 
So once Christ was sacrificed, there were to be no other sacrifices. Now here are some other things that get messed up if you ignore the problems with AD 26 or AD 33, and they're substantial. If you say that he was crucified on Nisan 14. First, you have a Palm Monday instead of a Palm Sunday. So you're not supporting tradition either way. One way or the other, everybody's got a buck uh, tradition. So people say, well, the church has always held. Well, they haven't always held. But even if you believe the church has always held, okay, well, you're going to have to buck tradition one way or the other. And um, if you look at the bottom, let's see, the last section of the chart on page 3, that's number 21, you'll see that none of the three theories 100% supports the Western tradition. So it's not a very strong argument. Now there's another problem with the newer Friday theory. You find that Jesus doesn't die at the time that the lambs die. He still is not in the tomb three days and three nights, and there are other problems for both the Wednesday and the Friday theories. Uh, on a 26 A.D. or a 33 A.D. dating that some people take, the lambs would be slain two hours earlier than Jesus died. The darkness would come two hours too late to stop the temple preparations for such sacrifices. It was uniquely on this year that the two Sabbaths were back-to-back, and it was in that circumstance alone that the sacrifice was made at 3 p.m. rather than 1 p.m. And I've got a whole pile of other... Uh, evidence that I'm not going to get into this morning, that Thursday fits the timing for a new covenant institution, a new calendar, and focuses the attention on Jesus so exquisitely that my prediction is within a few decades, this will become the majority opinion. Maybe I'm being overly optimistic (laughs) on that, but it's just amazing. In fact, there are uh, Friday people who have come over, scholars who have said, you know, and even those who have not come over, like Ernest Martin recently changed to uh, Thursday uh, Theory, brilliant guy. But there's others who are at least saying, wow, the evidence is so strong in favor of Thursday, we need to at least be open to it. And they have not in the past. So to me, that's a very interesting um, thing. But let's go on to the beauty of the Passion Week as it was supposed to look. There is an incredible symmetry if you hold to the Thursday Theory. Ten days before Jesus was crucified, he was anointed with oil for his burial, very specifically for his burial, on the very day when Passover lambs were marked out and consecrated for death. And it was in the same area. Now, I find it very interesting that the two witnesses we've been looking at in Revelation chapter 11 finished their witness, and they were killed 40 years later to the very day. And it's almost like God is saying, hey, if you reject the witness from the lamb, the lamb is going to slay you. So it's, it's, there's this, this marking out a kind of a concept. Um, actually, there are a number of other remarkable parallels. Earlier that month, the lambs were usually brought from Bethlehem in preparation for these rituals. And 40 years later, on Tammuz 17 of AD 70, the temple sacrifices had to end because they couldn't bring their temple lambs from Bethlehem. Okay, and I, I won't get into all of the parallels between 30 AD and 70 AD because it's going to make it already too complicated sermon, even more complicated. But God has a perfect plan, and he messes up Satan's Antichrist plans in both AD 30 and in AD 70. Now back to AD 30, 10 days before Christ was crucified, Christ was anointed with oil for his burial on the very day that the Passover lambs were marked out and consecrated for death. 
over the next 10 days, those lambs had to be seen and examined every day. 10 days of examination. And of course, all 10 days are accounted for on a Thursday theory. They're not accounted for on a Friday theory. They're missing at least one day. Most people say two days on the Friday uh, theory. It gets messed up. Um, But this was a public display that all of the lambs were without blemish. Christ was on public display as the final lamb for 10 days. Then there's the triumphal entry on Nisan 10. Why does Jesus walk to the temple? That was the day in which the lambs were herded to the temple. Josephus says that there were over 250,000 lambs that were walking down the streets of Jerusalem uh, toward the temple so that the priests there, again, could examine those lambs. And interestingly, uh, Jesus walks in the midst of those lambs, and he too is examined by those priests. And far from finding any blemish in Jesus, he finds blemish in them, and he cleanses them out of the temple and says basically that uh, they're no longer legitimately performing those ceremonies. But he's the last lamb. But I I think the main point is, can you imagine? I I think it helps to bring to life the incredible emotion that you see in John chapter 12 when he's walking toward the temple. He's walking in the midst of 250,000 lambs. He's very self-consciously saying, I'm going to my death here soon as well, just like these lambs are. Now, if you look at the chart on the Passover meaning on page 4, you'll see that it all perfectly pointed to Jesus. And and Rodney started uh, with some of this. What I'm just going to do, I'm not going to talk about each of these points, but I'm just going to quickly list them for you. He was the Lamb of God. He was a lamb without blemish. In other words, he was without sin. He was in his prime. He was anointed four days before his Passover. He was crucified on the 14th, just as all Israel had to kill the lamb in Exodus 12, verse 6. All Israel is accused of killing Jesus in the Gospels, just like your sins and my sins killed him. Okay, um, just um, as the blood of the lamb was applied to the doorpost, Scripture says that the blood of Christ must be applied to our lives if we are to be protected from the destruction of Satan. Next, it was a household redemption, just as Christ's redemption sets apart entire families, 1 Corinthians seven fourteen. Now, number eight in our chart has an error in it, and I should have remembered because David pointed out that error last time I preached on this, and I did not change the chart. Uh, but instead of saying threshold on number eight, it should say lintel. And lintel, well, some, some dictionaries actually say threshold is that Hebrew word, but it's usually the... Uh, the post that's above uh, the door frame. So um, just as blood was applied to the lintel over the door and those who stepped through the door left Egypt, committed themselves to the Lord and to his new kingdom, we do the same today. Just as they had to stay inside the house to be protected in Exodus 12, we must remain in Christ's household to be spared according to Hebrews. Just as they had to partake of the lamb, we must partake of Jesus. Just as they had to eat all of it, John 6 says to his complainers that they had to partake of all of him. Now, the whole context there is they wanted to receive Christ as provider, but not Christ as Lord or Christ as Savior from their sin. And Christ says, no, you've got to partake of all of me or you have no salvation. 
And I think the same thing he would, be, would be said by him to the carnal Christian theorists today who say you can accept Christ as Lord, and re, I mean as Savior, but reject him as Lord. And uh, you'll still get to heaven. And he says, no, you accept Jesus as he, as he is. We can't pick and choose. Um, let's see, just as the Passover lamb was roasted with fire, Christ suffered under the fire of God's judgment. Just as it had to be eaten immediately, Scripture says that today is the day of salvation. Now is the acceptable time to receive Christ. Just as bitter herbs were eaten in remembrance of their suffering in Egypt, Christ redeems us from the bitterness of sin. So in other words, he didn't die to make us comfortable in our sins. He died us to save us from our sins, uh, rescue us from bitter bondage. Just as what was left over of the lamb had to be burned and none of it could be left over for any stranger, Christ's redemption is effective only for the elect. Jesus said, I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Not one bit of that Passover lamb could go to those who are outside of the covenant. Revelation 5.9 says that we're redeemed out of the rest of mankind to God. Just as not one bone of that lamb could be broken, John 19 says, hey, that was a prophecy that not one bone of Christ could be broken on the cross. So they broke the thieves' bones, but not Jesus' bones. Just as they fled from Egypt uh, upon eating that lamb, we're called to flee from the wrath to come. Just as Egypt was judged by the death angel, those not redeemed will be judged. Just as there was no leaven in the Passover meal, Christ dealt once and for all with the leaven of sin and replaced it with the leaven of the kingdom. I thought it was beautiful how Rodney talked about, okay, the leaven of Passover, he's dealt once and for all with sin. Now we have the leaven of the kingdom in Pentecost, the next festival. So the growth of sin that started with Adam is replaced now with the gradual growth of the kingdom is basically what that is, uh, what that is saying. Now I'll come back to some of these events um, in a moment, but there is significance to the timing when Christ was nailed to the cross as well as the darkness from noon to three o'clock, those three hours of darkness. Those were the precise hours when preparations would have been made in the temple uh, between 12 and three o'clock. Uh, so that they'd be ready to efficiently sacrifice over 250,000 lambs uh, that had to be slain between 3 and 5. If they didn't start at 12, there was no way that they could, they, they could get that all done. They had to end by 5 to get people back to their homes to eat the Passover so they're not breaking the Sabbath themselves. So that's a lot of lambs to get prepared from noon to 3 and to be slain from 3 to 5. And Josephus indicates that on a typical Passover, there were 3 million people who traveled to Jerusalem. Now, only a tenth of those had to come. He estimated that there would be about 250,000 males standing outside the uh, temple waiting for their lamb. But... God made sure that this was going to be a spectacle that everybody had to witness. They were, nobody could deny. In order to accommodate the massive crowds, the priests had a system all worked out at noon. And like I say, if he didn't be, they didn't begin at noon, um, it would not get done. So what happened at noon? Darkness happened, right? That's when Jesus died. I mean, not uh, three hours before he died. Darkness happened. My, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So three hours of darkness. So you got 250,000 men standing outside the temple. All of a sudden the lights go out. They've not thought to bring any lanterns with them. They can't leave. They're going to trample each other if they leave. 
And so God has made sure that they have to think what is going on on this Passover day. And what happens the moment the lights are turned back on? Well, the moment the lights are turned back on, uh, putting all of the sources together, and by the way, Ernest Martin does a fabulous job of putting the sources together. Here's what would have happened. According to Josephus, Roman historian, the Talmud, biblical accounts, they would have seen this. The outside doors, boom, would have opened of their own accord. They would have heard a loud voice saying, we're leaving here. Now, that would have been freaky, but I think that was the glory cloud saying, we're forsaking this place. They would have felt an earthquake. They would have seen a several-ton lintel falling to the ground, and the curtain was attached to that lintel, so the whole outside curtain that hid the inner parts of the temple would be completely laid bare. Then immediately they would have seen that inner curtain being torn from top to bottom. It's very obvious that God is tearing that curtain from top to bottom. So for the first time in their lives, these Jews would have seen straight into the Holy of Holies, something they would never have ever dreamed of being able to happen uh, in their lifetime. This was something that was not done in a corner. There were a lot of witnesses uh, to these supernatural events that were going on. And it, I, I don't think this was lost on the priests. I think there's a reason why there were so many priests who came to the faith in Acts chapter 6. Christ, with one sweep of his hands, is wiping away the sacrificial system to anybody who had eyes to see. But there was also preparation for the festival of first fruits. Uh, first fruits was on Sunday, but the preparation for it began the evening before Jesus was crucified on Wednesday evening. The elders went out, marked the spot that was to be harvested by binding together the standing grain with a rope. That was the night that Jesus was bound by the elders of Israel. Guess where the grain was bound? It was outside old Jerusalem, over the brook Kidron, in the new section of the city. Guess where Jesus was bound? It was outside of the old city of Jerusalem, over the brook Kidron, in the Garden of Gethsemane, which bordered that field. So the grain was bound on the evening that Jesus was bound. Guess when the grain was cut down? It was the next afternoon, just before the Passover Sabbath began, and announcing the start of the Passover Sabbath, and that was when Jesus was taken down off of the cross. It was... Um, uh, almost Sabbath, which is why they had to find a nearby tomb. Now, let me read you the part of the description of the first fruits harvest given by the Jewish writer Alfred Edersheim. He said, When the time for cutting the sheaf had arrived, just as the sun went down, three men, each with a sickle and basket, set to work, clearly to bring out what was distinctive in the ceremony. They first asked of the bystanders three times each these questions. Has the sun gone down with this sickle into this basket on this Sabbath or first Passover day? And lastly, shall I reap? Having each time been answered in the affirmative, they cut down barley to the amount of one ephah, or about three pecks and three pints of our English measure. Now, when you think about these details, again, God's superintending providence can be so clearly seen. It foreshadows the fact that the elders of Israel cut Christ off from the land of the living. They agreed to do it on the Passover timing, and they asked the people if the people were willing to apply the sickle, and they answered in the affirmative. And what they answered in the affirmative on the, 
harvesting of that grain, they answered in the affirmative on Jesus. They said, crucify him. Okay, so uh, the whole people are applying the sickle to Jesus. Now, Edersheim comments on the irony of the moment as the throng carried that basket of grain away at the very time that Nicodemus and Joseph carry Jesus' body away to a nearby tomb. He says, a noisy throng followed delegates from the Sanhedrin outside the city and across the brook Kidron. It was a very different procession and for a different purpose from the small band of mourners which just about the same time carried the body of the dead Savior from the cross to the rock-hewn tomb wherein no man had yet been laid. While the one turned into the garden, perhaps to one side, the other emerged amidst loud demonstrations in a field across Kidron which had been marked out for that purpose. They were to be engaged in a service most important to them. It was probably to this circumstance that Joseph of Arimathea owed their non-interference with his request for the body of Jesus and Nicodemus and the women that they could go undisturbed about the last sad offices of loving mourners. So the heavy basket containing the sheaves of grain was carried to the temple and the grain stayed in that basket for three days and three nights just like Christ stayed in his tomb for three days and three nights. Always on the first Sunday after Passover, the grain was taken out of the basket, was beaten, ground, and purified, and then it was offered up to the Lord as a, a wave offering. So the grain is a symbol of Christ and of all the saints united with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And just as the grain was ground so that you could not separate any of the kernels, they're all united together, we are united together uh, with Jesus Christ. We cannot be separated. Our participation in his resurrection guarantees our own. The key to your being received by God as a heave offering is being united to Jesus by faith. And it's only those who put their faith in Christ of whom the scripture says that they are legally dead with Christ, buried with Christ, risen with Christ. In fact, Ephesians says we're seated with Christ in the heavenlies right now. We're willing with him. That's how tightly we're connected with him. Now, isn't that a marvelous picture of God's Passion Week? I think it's an incredible picture. I think it helps us to appreciate the accuracy and the harmony of Scripture. It helps us to fulfill 1 Peter 3.15, which commands us to always be ready to give an answer of the hope that lies within us. It helps us to deal with the doubts of others. It strengthens our faith and the power and wisdom of God. It helps us to trust God's providence now. I mean, just think about it. If he was able to superintend 100 prophecies being fulfilled in Christ's life during that, during that week. If he's able to superintend that, many of those involve the sins of men, yet he's not involved in sin, yet he overrules it all. I think we can trust him with our little lives <laughs> to be able to regulate uh, and, and providentially guide us, work all things together for good. Just as Jesus had total confidence in God when he said that he was going as it had been determined, we too can have boldness and confidence that we are going just as it has been determined. We need not fear financial collapse in America, and I'm convinced it's coming. I may be wrong, but we don't need to fear it. We need not fear communism. We need not fear uh, whether we're going to die. Uh, God, just as God controlled every detail of Christ's suffering, we cannot suffer one more thing than it's God's good purpose and loving purpose for us to go through. 
This whole message, I think, should cause us to trust God's providence and His grace implicitly. But for me, it raises up awe and amazement and adoration of God's wisdom and His grace that's displayed in the Passion Week. And I hope that it's also going to encourage us as we go back in a couple of weeks to Revelation to say, you know, we can have the same confidence that the God who orchestrates every detail there is precise, absolutely precise in the book of Revelation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. You are good. And uh, you caused Christ to go through this pain so that we would not have to be forsaken by you. And Father, you have blessed us in so many different ways. Help us to have trust in you when things go bad. Uh, when we have to suffer, that even that suffering is working together for our good. Help us, Father, to not question you, uh, to doubt your providences, but to delight and to glory in all that you have for us. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.